This morning we're in Acts 21, verses 17 through 26. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor walk in the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do what this that we tell you. We will have four men who are under a vow. We take, take them and purify yourself with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men the next day, purifying himself along with them, went to the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Thank you. Good morning. Pastoring is hazardous work. A recent survey showed that nine out of ten pastors don't retire as pastors. They end up getting out of the ministry before that for various reasons. Ninety percent of pastors say they were woefully unprepared for what they actually faced in ministry. I think a lot of it has to do with expectations. Most of us step into ministry with a vision of what we want to see happen. We're excited about how God could use us, and we can't wait to see how God's going to use us to transform the church and do mighty things for Him. But reality is a lot different than our expectations. (laughs) It seldom works out the way we expect. But that's not true only of pastors. I think it's true really of Most every one of us who steps into the church as we come to Christ, we have great expectations of what life will be like in the church. This is a place where Jesus reigns. He's Lord. And so, of course, we will be loved well and appreciated and valued and cared for in an amazing way. And, of course, there'll be very little pain or conflict in relationships. (laughs) But then reality hits And the truth is, life in the church is pretty messy. Relationships can be difficult, and as we begin to walk with people, we realize how petty and selfish people, even in the church, can be. And if we have any self-awareness, we see all those things in ourselves as well. And so it's easy to become quickly disillusioned with the church, and some have just simply stopped going to church because of that disillusionment. 
In our passage today, as we see what Paul faces in Jerusalem as he meets with the church there and the things that happen and what he experiences both from Christians and from the world, we get an opportunity for us to reshape our own expectations, to bring them more in line with what we really should expect, what Scripture teaches us to expect so that we can enter into relationships with one another with a lot less expectation and maybe a lot more love and grace and forgiveness. So let's pray and we'll look at this passage together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are perfect in your relationships with one another, but we all struggle with sin. And even when we come to you, we're not perfected yet, and so we have to deal with our own flesh and the flesh of one another. And so life in the church can be difficult. And a lot of it is because of our own expectations. So today, Lord, teach us what to expect from ourselves and from one another in a way that will help us truly be the church that you created us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what should we expect first from Christians? What should we expect? Verse 17, which Nikki just read, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. I think first we we should expect joyful community in the body of Christ. I mean, after all, we're, we're one in Jesus. The Spirit has bonded us together. We have oneness in him, and so when we come together, there should be a sense and an expectation of joyful community where we are learning to value one another. And, you know, Paul must have been a bit apprehensive as he came to meet with the leaders there in Jerusalem and the church there because he'd been out traveling and many Gentiles had come to Christ. He knew that was a point of tension, and so... He might have expected that things wouldn't go well, but what he received was a warm welcome. This is the joy of our life together as believers in Jesus Christ. We're all brothers and sisters serving our Father, and the Spirit gives us a sense of oneness in Him. And so we should experience what someone recently told me. They'd recently come to Christ. They hadn't really been involved in a church. They came to Cole, and They were just amazed at how people welcomed them and encouraged them into their small group, got them involved in their small group, and there was such a sense of joy that this is a place where God is really working, and that's true not just at Cole, but all over, because Jesus resides in his body of Christ in the church, and so we should expect that. We should expect joyful community together. Secondly, I see in this passage that we should expect to celebrate God together, a celebration of who God is, verse 18 through the beginning of 20, where it says, the following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. By the way, this James, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem at this time, is the Lord's brother, not James and John. That James had been killed earlier in the book of Acts. But this is James, the Lord's brother, who wrote the book of James. The other apostles seem to have been scattered at this point. So there's James and then the elders who were there at the church. They greet Paul 
After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. He relates to them the things that God had done, the the trials he'd had, the difficulties, but also the churches that had been planted, the many of people who'd come to Christ, the awesome things that God had been doing. It must have been amazing as he told about all these churches throughout the Roman Empire, throughout Asia and through Achaia, Greece, current-day Turkey and all those places where God had done all kinds of things, calling people to himself from all those backgrounds. You see, the church is about God, and it's about what he's doing, and so we should expect in our time together to be celebrating God. A celebration of who he is, of his character, the songs we've been singing, and the words that are spoken and the prayers should all be about celebrating ultimately who God is and what he is doing and how he is working in the world so that we can worship him for who he is. In any true gathering of the people of God, it should be centered around God and what he's doing and who he is. We should expect this in, his, in our community life together. And when it says they were glorifying God, the verb tense there is the imperfect in the Greek, which means it was continuous. They were continuously glorifying God. They were so excited about what he was doing. It wasn't one time. It was their life together. So I think we should... Make sure we always emphasize that. And I encourage you to look for opportunities to celebrate what God's doing in your life and who he is. And I encourage you to go to vision lunches when we have people back from the field who are working and they come and describe what they're doing. Even if you're not a supporter of them financially, it's an opportunity to hear what God's doing in the world. And I encourage you to, with one another, when you see God working, when God's healed a marriage or when he's healed your own heart or he's shown you some wonderful truths, share those things with one another because that should be a major part of our community life together, celebrating God and who he is. Third, not quite as positive, what we should expect in our community life together is misunderstanding and slander. (laughs) We should expect in our community life together misunderstanding and slander. Notice the end of verse 20 and verse 21. It says, They said to him, so James and the elders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, said this, You see, brother, speaking to Paul, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed Praise God, many of the Jews had come to Christ. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. The word there is apostatize Moses. To apostatize Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So the Jewish leaders say, hey, many Jews have come to Christ. They're they're zealous for the law. They haven't given up their Jewish traditions. And we're their shepherds, and we need to think about our church. And they've been taught, he says in verse 21, 
that Paul had been teaching the Jews to apostatize Moses, to turn their backs completely on their Jewish heritage. Was that true? No, it was a lie. That was not true. Paul himself had gone through a Nazarite vow and had his head shaved, which was a sign of commitment to the Jewish God. He had had Timothy circumcised. He still followed much of his Jewish background himself. It's a lie. Paul has not been teaching that. It's a misunderstanding. But more than that, it's become a means of discrediting Paul and his ministry. How do I know that? Well, it's kind of interesting. The word in verse 21 where it says, they have been told. Now, think of this for a minute. James is talking about his church there in Jerusalem where thousands of Jews have come to Christ, zealous for the law, and he says, they have been told, and the word for told there is the Greek word katekeo. You may recognize an English word from that, catechize. Now, we don't do it so much in the Protestant tradition, but if you have a Catholic background, a catechize means to systematically teach doctrine. And so what James says is, hey, our people, our church, has been systematically taught that you are teaching these things. Who was doing that? I don't know, but it was intentional. Clearly an intentional effort to discredit Paul in Jerusalem and beyond. And I don't know about you, but I kind of go, well, James, why didn't you just teach him that that was wrong? Why didn't you correct the teaching? Why didn't you take leadership here? James was certainly capable of that. Uh, You read the book of James? He's very capable of being confrontive, right? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James 4.1. He's very capable. But for whatever reason, James and the elders here are not stepping into the issue. And they're letting people teach these kinds of things about Paul. I don't know why they didn't challenge it. I have a suspicion, and it's set by the context. You see, Israel in those days was very volatile. There was a lot of Jewish nationalism, and the the Jews were angry because the Romans had been oppressing them for about a hundred years, and they were tired of that, and rebellion was beginning to foment, and these Jewish Christians were still tied into that nationalistic response. And so I think James and the other leaders were afraid to connect too closely to Paul because they were afraid their own people would turn on them. Because of this nationalistic trend that was going on through the country, it appears that a lot of the Christians, these Jewish Christians, their faith is still tied in with their Jewish nationalism too tightly. They can't seem to separate them. Now, God separates it, their Jewish faith, from their Christian faith. About 10 years later, when the Jews rebelled and God allowed the Romans to destroy the temple, and destroy the nation of Israel. It was God's way, I think, of helping the Christians see, look, it's time to make a break with your nationalistic ties 
and begin to live your faith for the kingdom of God, not for this world. I'm concerned that some of us have done that very thing. We've tied our faith too much to our, our American society or a particular political party, and our faith is, is too dependent on that, and I think God may have to strip that away. Our faith should be dependent on Him and not tied to our nation or any political party. But God, for now, for now, <laughs> Paul is a victim of their extreme tie of their faith and their Jewish background and their nationalism, and the leaders don't seem to be able to step into it for whatever reason. But you know what? Slander was common in the early church, as was gossip and rumors and those kinds of things that are going on here in Jerusalem. If you read the New Testament over and over again, you see that being addressed. Paul addresses it in many of his books. Let me just read one example for you in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul writes this. Verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, why would he say that unless it was happening in the church? Be kind to one another, he says, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. He says, hey, the church needs to put off those kinds of things. Stop it and learn to extend forgiveness to one another. So it was common in the early church, and many of you have experienced similar things. I certainly have. I've had lies told about me. Maybe you've jumped into a church or a a group of some kind, some kind of ministry, and you've been hurt by misunderstandings, by untruths, even slander, lies being told, gossip and rumors. And it's been a struggle. It's been difficult for you. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, Life Together, that you know what? That's a good thing for the church when you get faced with that. He says this, The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. Expectations. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine fellowship, so surely we must be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. (laughs) You see... That allows us then to begin to be the church as we really are, not as we expect it to be. And as I said, many of you have experienced difficult times. I certainly have. I've had lies told about me. Uh, I heard recently a story of a woman in our church who grew up in the home of a pastor, and the pastor father was accused of some things, spent eight months in jail. They were lies. He was totally freed and exonerated after an investigation. But imagine the pain and the damage of that. And if you're like me, you go, this shouldn't be. This should not be happening in the church. And we hear things like, well, non-Christians are often more caring than Christians. 
Well, I, I like the way C.S. Lewis addressed that thinking. <laughs> to paraphrase it, he said, you know what? God loves to save messed up people like us. And when he saves us, he begins a process of transforming us, but we are just in that process. And if we began pretty messed up, it's gonna, we're going to come into community and still be working through a lot of stuff. And so our community is going to be messy. I believe that's God's plan for us. It doesn't excuse our poor behavior. But God's plan for us is that we might represent Christ to one another. The Christ who forgives us, who puts up with us, who bears with us, who loves us despite our faults. And we have the opportunity to extend that kind of love and forgiveness to one another. We get to practice love and forbearance, forgiveness constantly as we encourage each other on the path Again, there's many passages I could turn to, but in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this, and think about why he would say this. Bearing with one another, verse 13, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, Paul wouldn't have to say that unless that's something that we have to live out all the time, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, putting on love, which is the perfect bond of unity so that sin doesn't divide us. We're all in process. Every one of you, the person next to you is in process. And uh, I I appreciate Henry now in, in what he says because I think he strikes to the very heart of often what goes on in our communities, in our own hearts, where he says this. It goes somewhat like this. I'm not so sure anymore that I have a safe home if we're kind of insecure about where we are in a community. And I observe other people who seem to be better off than I. I wonder how I can get to where they are. I try hard to please, to achieve success, to be recognized But when I fail, I feel jealous or resentful of these others. When I succeed, I worry the others will be jealous or resentful of me. I become suspicious or defensive and increasingly afraid that I won't get what I so much desire or will lose what I already have. Caught in this tangle of needs and wants, I no longer know my own motivations. I feel victimized by my surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing or saying. Always on my guard, I lose my inner freedom. And I start dividing the world into those who are for me and those who are against me. I wonder if anyone really cares. I start looking for validations of my distrust, and wherever I go, I see them. And I say, no one can be trusted. And then I wonder whether anyone ever really loved me. There's just a lot going on inside of us, aren't there? Each one of us as we sit together in community. So what does this teach us about our expectations? Well, I think that we should expect misunderstanding and conflict in the church of Jesus Christ. It's just part of us being in process together. And again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, 
Is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I, too, stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may, get, may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? Did you hear that? Even as our brother's sin is an opportunity to give thanks that we both may live in the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. Where we get into trouble is when we expect people to love us perfectly and not have to deal with conflict. It's just part of our life together. Fourth, what we should expect in our life together that Paul experiences is manipulation. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Verse 22 and following, you see where the James and the elders come to Paul and they say, you know, here's a way maybe you can deal with this lies that people are telling about you, Paul. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to pay for the, these four men who are going through a vow and they've got to pay for sacrifices and this whole purification ceremony. If you pay for them and you go through the purification yourself, maybe that'll show all the people in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, that you are okay with Judaism and you're not trying to tell people not to live it. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it seems to me the church leaders are bailing on their own responsibility here. (laughs) They should have stepped in and have, at the very least, taken Paul to the people and say, hey, we support him. He's following God. You've, been, you've learned wrong things about him or something like that. But instead, here, Paul, we'll put you out there. You do this, and, and maybe that'll change their perception. I think that's poor leadership, personally. Their intentions may have been good, but Paul is being used here. He's being manipulated here, and it didn't really work. In fact, when he did this, What ended up happening is that very thing that they asked him to do got him arrested. It didn't work. I think Paul, or I think Luke, includes this in the book of Acts to let us know that our attempts to control the perceptions of others really won't work. We have to learn to live with false ideas and just let it go, and people are going to spread rumors and whatever, and sometimes you just have to let it go and forgive and get beyond it. And I've had to do that a number of times. Uh, Most recently, this is very minor, but I ran into someone who used to be on staff here years ago and hadn't seen them for a while, and I saw him, and I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, hey, I hear you're retiring. It's like, really? (laughs) I hope I get invited to the party. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't have any plans, you know. I mean, someday, but God... As long as God keeps me here. I mean, I just didn't know what to say, but I thought, where did he hear that? How does stuff get passed around like that? Where does it come from? You know, it's, I don't know, it's strange. But I didn't ask. Because, you know, it's not worth chasing down rumors, right? But we can expect that we're going to experience things like that. That's just part of the messiness of relationship. So we shouldn't be surprised when it happens because we're living with people who are in process like we are. So that's what to expect from the church, some great celebration of God and joyful community, but also just some real messiness. 
Well, what should we expect from the world around us as believers? What does Paul experience in this passage that we can learn from? Well, verse 27 through 32, what we see he experiences is lies and abuse from the world. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Jews of Asia show up and they're angry. It's Pentecost, so they happen to be there. They see Paul and they decide to spread more lies and rumors about him, which are not true. He did not bring a Greek into the temple and he's not speaking against the law. But he's lied about again. But they use this as an opportunity because, again, this is a period of extreme Jewish nationalism and they hate Gentiles. They hate the Roman oppressors and they equate any Gentiles with the Roman oppressors. It's like we can sometimes do where we equate all Muslims with terrorists. Brothers and sisters, that's just wrong. I know a lot of Muslims and they're wonderful people. They need Jesus. (laughs) But they're wonderful people. But they were carrying that kind of anger and hatred of all Gentiles and they were looking for a reason to rebel. And in fact, yes, the rebellion came only eight to ten years later when they rebelled against Rome, threw the Romans out of Jerusalem, and then the Romans came back and destroyed Jerusalem and the nation. And in verse 31, it says they were seeking to kill him. It says, verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Egyptian in the city, so they blamed this on Paul, even though Paul had not brought him into the temple. Verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul experiences people trying to kill him, getting beaten. We can expect to be hated by the world. Jesus said that, right? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. And in John chapter 16, the first few verses, he says, in fact, it's the religious people that are probably going to mistreat you the worst. And that's exactly what's happening here, but it also can happen to us, and it's happened throughout history to faithful believers. If we're living for Jesus, the world won't understand us. And it's increasingly true in our culture, isn't it? The world doesn't get us. We don't fit. So we should expect, as followers of Jesus, for some to respond to the gospel because God has prepared their hearts. They're ready. They need to hear the gospel, and we've got to spread the word for those people. But we can also expect many to resist and even to lie and slander and try to do us harm. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, Peter writes this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. They may not glorify God until Jesus comes, the day of visitation. But ultimately they will if you stay faithful 
and are willing to put up with the slander and continue to do good. So we can expect from the world lies and abuse. But here's the surprising thing. We can also expect from the world protection and provision. Protection and provision. Verse 33 and following, the commander takes Paul and the the people are trying to kill him and the commander, the Roman commander, takes all his men. He's the commander of a thousand men, gets them and they carry Paul. Verse 35, it says, when he got to the stairs, he, Paul, was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. I want to show you a picture of the temple area and um, the Antonia Fortress, way off to the right of the temple grounds, that corner, the northeast corner, northwest corner, is the Antonia Fortress, and that's where the commander is looking down on the temple grounds. They built the temple, or the fortress there, so they could keep an eye on what was going on, and there was a riot going on right below there in that temple area, and so he went down and saved Paul, brought him up, and carried him to safety. I love that verse, verse 5. They carried him up the steps. It's a beautiful picture. He's carried by the soldiers to save him from the Jewish riot. You see, God uses the Roman army, this Gentile pagan army, to save Paul, to protect him and provide for him. It's a good reminder for us God's in control. His purposes cannot be thwarted. So he can use unbelieving powers, armies, politicians, etc., to protect and provide for his people. He does that all the time. It's been done throughout history, and we experience all kinds of wonderful protections and provisions in this country as Christians, not because this is a godly country, Because it's not. But because God has chosen to use our government to allow us to live out our faith in freedom for the moment. God is in control. And we can expect that he will even use the world around us, the unbelieving world, for protection and provision for us. So notice, as you think about this passage, what we can expect from both the church and the world both good and bad, both love and protection and support, and slander and lies and abuse. Because we live in a messy world where relationships are messy. It was true for Paul. It was true for Jesus. It was true for the saints throughout the Scripture, and it's been true for the saints throughout history, and it's true for us. But notice especially verse 19 and verse 35. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And then verse 35. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Yes, relationships are messy. Yes, it's hard. But God is always at work. God is at work behind the scenes for his greater purposes, bringing glory to him and expanding his kingdom, providing everything we need ultimately to do his will as he works it out in us and through us. 
So our job is to keep our eyes on him. In the midst of the messiness, keep our eyes on him and keep reflecting him to those around us by how we love and how we forgive, by how we care for one another and by how we forgive and by how we serve in the body of Christ and by how we forgive. And by the way, we're also called to forgive.